me. You know, when I was a kid, my brother Levi came to Christ, and it was uh, a, quite the transition from what, his, what he used to do. And then when he met Christ, it was mind-blowing. And then afterwards, it was interesting because he went to a jewelry shop, and he got this gold ring. I remember the big L on there, which I'm not sure if it just meant Levi also got his love. Because on his necklace, he also had a dog tag. And inscribed on the dog tag was, God is love. God is love. Now, that to me is quite interesting because when you say God is love and really, really, really think about that, what does that mean? Does that mean he's not justice? Does that mean he's not wrath? Does that mean that love wins out on this or that? Or could it be that when we say God is love, that means that he can hold all of these different characteristics perfectly in perfect balance and somehow still run the universe and care deeply and intimately for each and every one of us. So that's where I want to jump into today. And I was uh, trying to bang out this a series on, like, how do I approach this? Being February and all, we all think we all get mushy and gushy that it's February, the love month. But more than that, when we say that God is love, what does that mean? And we want to dive into that. We also, next week, being the 14th, we want to dive into what does it mean to love your spouse or to love the person you're with? And also, what does it mean later on to love your neighbor? And I'm hoping also to bring somebody in and talk about how do you love your new neighbor? You know what I mean by that, right? Huh? Refugees and stuff? And then maybe uh, uh, loving our enemies and all that stuff. But what does it mean that God is love, especially in a day and age where love can be used for so many different things. And in English, we use it for everything. So turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. And let's dive into this and let's start our overview of Christian love. So this will be kind of an overview of the next four or five weeks on what does it mean uh, to start off with God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. John, 1 John chapter 4, starting... At verse 7 all the way to 21. Starts off with beloved. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, showing, shows itself, proves itself that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Fantastic scrabble word there for you. Take that home. Propitiation. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that, we're, that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, amazing verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected 
in love. We love because he first loved us. If somebody says, well, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. Or I love God and I hate my spouse. Or I love God, I can't stand my mom. Well, you can't say I love God and do that. You're a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word and you'd open it up to us. And... Um, not that we'd also just enjoy doctrine about the love of God, but that it would spur us on to love you back and to love others around us. Reveal yourself, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had some fun last night because when I looked at the sermon title, what I'd call this whole thing, love is dot, dot, dot. It reminded me of a good old rock and roll song from the 80s. So I brought that baby up on YouTube and I watched Alana Miles rock out to love is, love is what you want it to be. She's wearing a sweet leather jacket, the curly hair and a short skirt that actually came all the way to her knees and she was swaying back and forth. And it was, she was just rocking out to love is what you want it to be. Y'all know that I get my theology from rock songs, not but when I looked at this, she gave this, this a paragraph, love is what you want it to be. Love is heaven to the lonely. Show me what you want me to do because love is what I got for you. Remember that? You want me to sing it? No. Okay. <laughs> How tempting. Um, like I said, I don't get my theology from rock songs here because I think lots of it's messed up what she has here. But listen to this. Love is what you want it to be. But love is heaven to the lonely. Show me what you want me to do because love is what I got for you. And I would like to think that that last sentence there, except it would probably be in proper English or Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew, I don't know. But God would say, because love is what I got for you. Love is what I got for you. It's not what she said, love is what you want it to be. No, that is the cheap version of what this world has to offer. But God would say, because love is what I got for you. So let's check into that a little bit. What does it mean when Alana or God would say, love is what I got for you? So from our text in 1 John, first of all, we need to kind of look, what is he talking about in 1, 2, and 3 John? Why is he even writing this letter? And again, with many books of the New Testament, we see Gnosticism creeping into the church, and we see people kind of, um, almost idolizing or putting upon a, an altar the whole gift of knowledge. Knowledge is everything. In fact, we've even heard that today. We think to deal with a lot of our problems in, in today, even when there was um, sex going rampant within the high schools, we think, oh, knowledge is the answer. Just teach the kids what could happen. Well, I don't think that's quite the answer to the whole thing. But nonetheless, we always seem to raise up knowledge. And if somebody's really educated, we just go stand in awe of somebody like that. Here... They're rising up and idolizing Gnosticism, thinking that knowledge or more knowledge is the answer to everything. And from that, we had at least two sects that would come into the church. One's called something like a Doetism, Docetism, and that was thinking that Jesus is kind of like a ghost. He's just spirit or ghost, a pneuma. 
And another one was Serinthianism, which Jesus had a dual personality in that he was sometimes functioning in humanity and sometimes functioning as divine. And we, to be very clear, we believe in the deity of Christ. That he's a hundred, when he was here, 100% God, 100% human. So the two were together. So he could go through as our high priest the, the, the thoughts and the struggles and the temptation, but he never moved into it. He was God and he was human. So now John is coming and he's trying to bring him on back to the whole compass to pointing north so that they have a good idea of what, what it means to be loved by God. Because let me tell you, folks, if you don't even understand how much God loves you, you're going to be messed up on how you love others. And you're going to be messed up on how to interpret when people are loving you. I think right off the bat, we have to have the foundation, the solid foundation, that what does it mean when we say God is love? So first I'm going to quote a guy. Years ago, he, he preached this one, Piper did. On 1 John 4, verse 8, he said this, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is a massive claim, Piper says. God is love. In a word, I think it means something like this. When, when it says that God is love, God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all other perfections is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also in his very nature, overflowing. So you don't have to worry that all of a sudden Monica has been praying for patience this week and I have been over here in a hundred mile house praying the same thing. Now, oh no, two of the same prayer requests came in. Now God's going, oh my goodness, where's my uh, reservoir, you know? He's overflowing with all these perfect characteristics and attributes. God is so absolute, he's so perfect so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful that he is by nature a giver, by nature a worker for others, by nature a helper, and by nature a protector. What it means to be God is to be full enough always to overflow and never to need, never to murmur, never to pout. God is love. The implications of this for the, for the way that we live are so big. Amen? This is incredible to think that he can have all these attributes in such a perfect dimension and such a, a, a perfect level that he's never more judging or he's never less loving or more wrath, less wrath. He owns all of these attributes and this is him. We will not wrap our heads all around that. Think about that because my little kid, she disobeys me and it, sometimes it bothers me and I'm trying to keep calm and be patient, think through the spirit, but also consequences. But I'm bothered, might send her to her room for a timeout, but I'm still like, I can't believe she said that to me. But then in the morning, she comes, hi, daddy, and jumps in my arms. I'm <laughs> so I'm all love in the morning, and I'm like, <laughs> in the evening, right? And God's not like that, thank the Lord. He's not like that. He's not swayed by the gushy-gushy stuff or the poor behavior. He owns it all perfectly, and he's overflowing in these attributes. God is love. Not only is God love, but I would like to say too from our text that God's love is pursuing. 
Folks, the love of God is deep and wide, and by no means can we comprehend its depth. It kind of is like the renovation of this. You probably walked in this morning and go, oh, that's a really nice paint job. Do you have no idea how much work went into the sanctuary this last week? It was madness. Let me just give you a glimpse. We had to move everything out, and our good old friend there, uh, Tennyson, I think he's a little bit of, what do you call those? A bit of a hoarder, okay? Because behind this wall covered a multitude of sin, right? And they, it was just stacked full of stuff. Along with that, that room back there, we had to haul out and haul out and haul out stuff, stuff, stuff. And then we had to rip apart all this, this whole um, stage here, and it was a lot smaller. And as I continued to rip the layers, I came across this hideous green carpet that I almost had to do an exorcism out of that thing. It was so ugly. So, I don't know if, do any of you remember that carpet, that green stuff? <laughs> okay. All the smooches ripped it all off, and then some of these, uh, these pillars had to be removed. All sorts of stuff had to happen here. We had to get the contractors in here on time, the carpet layer. Uh, we had to get painters in here, but before that, we had to get the drywall guys in, and then painting hundreds and hundreds of square feet, and then cleaning and vacuuming because on Saturday, we had a funeral. And you walk in here, well, that's a nice paint job, right? It was huge. And when I say God is love, you go, man, it feels nice. God loves me. It's huge. There's been so much that went on in the heavenlies, so much beaten down with the devil and some of his tactics, and so many things that happen even in human nature and what's available to us that we have no clue. We see the walls painted and we enjoy sitting here today, but the love of God is ginormous. And what has all happened in the heavenlies for us to enjoy a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ today. It's huge. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You want to say that, don't you? Propitiation, go ahead. <laughs> Excellent. Propitiation, try and spell it now. But a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. One another. How did he start off this passage that I read to you? What was the first word, at least in the NIV? What? Think about that for a second. He's thinking about the church in 1 John. He's thinking about you. He uses the same version of the Greek word where it's agape, agapeos, and all this other stuff. And beloved is the same kind of word. And he's thinking about you. He's thinking about the church. He's thinking about 1 John in that, in that uh, audience. And he's saying, a beloved. That term is amazing to me. That right off the bat, he's addressing us. Ah, beloved. The ones I love. It's a God kind of love, a love that pours out and doesn't necessarily look for anything coming back. It's a love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. It's a love while we were still enemies of God, shaking our fist, doing our own thing. He still sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. He says, beloved, beloved Harmon, beloved Andrew, Sarah. That is amazing. Why in the world would he call us beloved? The word propitiation takes us back in time to the mercy seat, to the mercy seat of the Old Testament. And I'll let somebody else, uh, I'll read somebody else on this one. With the mercy seat of the Old Testament, you had the Ark of the Covenant, 
The chest containing two stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments was the most sacred object of the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem where it was placed in the inner area, the very inner area called the Holy of Holies. Also within the ark were the golden pot of manna, such as which was provided by God in the wilderness wanderings, Exodus 16, and Aaron's almond rod. On top of the ark, so on top of this ark, was a lid called the mercy seat on which rested the cloud or visible symbol of the divine presence. Here God was supposed to be seated and from this place he was supposed to dispense mercy to man when the blood of the atonement was sprinkled there. The blood of atonement, the sacrifice of atonement, which happened how many times a year in the Old Testament? One time. One time. So you had the law sitting there in the Ark of the Covenant and some of these huge miracles. But if you look at that law, what does that law do? Make you feel all gushy on the inside? Make you feel like February 14th? Or do you look at it going, I am guilty because you all are and so am I. We're guilty of what's in that, what's inscribed on those tablets. We have broken the spirit of the law of the Ten Commandments. You know what's beautiful is on top of that, is the mercy seat. And an animal was killed, a blood sacrifice, and it was sprinkled on top, and that was the symbolism that something had died because we had broken that. We had broken that law. There was a sacrifice made so that it wasn't on you anymore. Your freedom had been bought. This is incredible because we know from Hebrews and we know from this passage and many others that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He now is on that mercy seat. So even though we are all still obligated to all those laws and we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, now we grab onto and claim what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So now God looks at us and he doesn't just see Steve or he just doesn't see Henny harm. He actually looks through the grid of Jesus Christ because we grab that in faith. We believe that he died on the cross and rose again for us. So now God sees that and through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I have been redeemed and not just my works and all my failings. So please don't get me wrong and think that God is just an angry father or angry stepdad or something like that. Not at all. We have to remember that God is perfect in all of these attributes. So if this stage represented the holiness of God, I could not even get close to this stage because I am not holy. He is holy and he can't change that. He's not just grumpy or he woke up moody thinking, I'm going to be holy today. You better not come close to the stage. This is who he is. And it's incredible because what Christ has done that I can enter into the holy of holies and chat with God. Folks, this isn't the paint job. Big things happen for this sanctuary to look like this. Big things happen for you to enter into the presence of God. And now you're called beloved. Beloved. Daniel Hyde goes on to say, the, the Lord is present in our midst in a public worship, just as he was in the tabernacle. But is he present to judge or to save? In a more personal way, will he look on our sins or will he look on Jesus Christ in our place? 
the Lord provided the Israelites a place of propitiation on the ark's lid, and he still provides a place today. That place is Jesus Christ. He offers himself to us. He turns away the wrath of God from us. He cleanses us from our sins. He cancels them out. He nullifies the power of the sin. He brings us into a presence of God, blameless and acceptable. Confess confess your sins to him and believe that Jesus Christ will propitiate God's wrath against you. In this way, you shall be saved. I love how he's written that. Folks, God is love. God's love is pursuing. I hope that's been obvious to you. But also God's love gives us confidence. Like I said, now we can actually approach the Holy of Holies because what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And I read, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in them. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Did you catch that? Especially verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You know, I've shared with you before, when I was a kid, I kind of had this fear relationship with God. I wanted to do the right stuff so that God smiled and wouldn't smite me. And then there's times where I totally sinned, either by accident or on purpose, but those were the days that I'd wear my seatbelt because I thought God's after me today. So I lived with this fear, and obviously I didn't get it. It was more of a works salvation, shall we say, where I thought I'd do the right stuff and then God would love me. Instead of realizing that I grab a hold of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross... I'm his beloved. I'm his beloved. Perfect love casts out fear. We no longer have to fear the judgment of God on the last day or on a day-to-day basis. But now I would like you to think instead of the fear, let's switch that. Now we can abide in love. Another word is dwell. Be at home. The fire's over here. You're in an easy chair and you're in the presence of God. God is love and I abide in the living room of God's love. A dwelling love that isn't motivated from imminent punishment, but a motivating love of response to this enveloping love that God has for us. Folks, I don't go look for sales on flowers and bring them home to my wife because, oh, I'm, I'm scared of that five-foot-four frame that's going to give me a smack upside the head if I don't give her flowers once in a while. No. I love my wife. We go through ups and downs. And I buy her flowers. God, I don't want to buy her flowers. It's a response. I know she loves me. And I know she knows that I love her. And I, I want to show that. It's quite a bit different than going, the wrath of Jody. (laughs) There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So we're talking love, agape, okay? Because if you want to use a different word, an English word for love, 
Think about that. Is there fear in relationships? Oh, yeah. Right? When you're dating or when you're in a tumultuous marriage, uh, we can't say with certainty that there is no fear in love. So we're talking here about God's love, the agape, a love that makes no sense. It is divine, and it casts out fear and replaces that fear with abiding in his love. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of boastfulness and arrogance, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. I find that last part interesting. Lovers of pleasures, uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to a form of godliness or holding on to a form of Christianity, I don't know, although they have denied its power, avoid these kind of people. Folks, our nation is in desperate need to see another way of relating. Our nation is in desperate need to see how we can relate differently to one another. I've said to you before, but if somebody would come up to the window here and and look through the windows and see, what do Christians do anyway? How do they relate to one another? I think after a few Sundays or a few weeks of looking through the window, I'm hoping that they would see some good stuff. Yeah, we still don't like each other all the time. Not all of our personalities get together perfectly 100% of the time. We have squabbles here and there. But how do we treat each other even in those disagreements? And that is your responsibility. That is your responsibility. If the love of God has been so pursuing of you that now you can actually abide in the Holy of Holies, what do you think about loving one another? We're going to see in just a bit that it's not a good idea. It's a command. It's a command. So when people look through the windows here, what do they see? Do they see us abiding in the love of God or fearful of him? Do they see us motivated by, I don't want to rouse God? Or do they see us motivated by an intrinsic motivation like, oh God, I just can't believe what you've done on the cross when you sent Jesus Christ. And now, how do we treat one another? Folks, in a world which you know, which you live in, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, have friendships so that you can milk that relationship and get what you want, get this, get that, get, get, get. It's all about me. When people... Look at the church. Are they going to see something different when they hang out here? I don't mean, oh, a bunch of hypocrites and stuff. But if they would actually give us a shot and look at how we treat one another, what would they see? I was just hanging out with somebody, and they said, you know, what do you think of that church? And it's a church that I think I've visited once or twice in my whole life. And they said, well, because my husband, you know, we go there once a year, and he doesn't like it. And you have no idea what I'm thinking on the inside, but I'll let you in just a bit. I'm going, what are you talking about that you can judge a, a, a church? And everything? Can you imagine if you come here one Sunday and Tennyson has a cold, you know, nasal cold, and he's off just a bit, and my hair isn't quite right, 
And then you come here and you judge us on being a little bit off a semitone and the hair not quite right. And you walk out of here going, wow, what a lousy church. Or you come in and I've even heard this. Oh, that church has a whole bunch of white hair and a bunch of old people. Are you kidding me? I like old people, okay? But you know what they don't understand? is that when it's those old people that have walked and seen and proven the faithfulness of God, and when I even whisper that somebody's hurting in this congregation and needs money, the checkbook comes out. Some old lady gives me or some old man gives me a check for that young couple or that young family. So don't go judging my white hair, you know? And that's what I mean too, is that when people come around and they see and they look through the windows, if they'd give you a chance, they'd see the divine love of God in action. Rolled out in life. A story, not just a Sunday morning. Our nation, I think, really needs to see us. And that's why it's even important in the weeks to come. We need to know and think about how we address and how we respond to our neighbor, and to our new neighbors. There comes a point where you might not like some of the uh, things that's going on in our government, how many people are coming in. Well, guess what? It's happening. And how will you and I respond? Confidence. You guys, we can have confidence to come into the Holy of Holies. We can switch our fear for abiding And now we can have confidence in God's love and he gives us a command because of that confidence. And I think back to even, which I think is madness, but you're actually on course on a boat in the middle of the ocean and all the ships a captain is looking at is a little bubble of a uh, a compass. That to me is madness because I like land. So you're looking at this little bubble and I'm going, are you kidding me? My whole safety my whole love of relationship with the land is based on you looking at a little bubble of a compass. But yeah, compasses are amazing. Compasses are amazing. Somebody says here, um, uh, because it shows the captain his directions. And why does the compass point north? Because it is so constituted that it responds to the magnetic field that is part of the earth's makeup. The compass is responsive to the nature of the earth. The compass responds to the nature of the earth. What do you respond to? Do you respond to your old nature, selfish nature, me, 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 I, I, I? Or do you respond to the new nature which is given to you in Christ Jesus? Where is your compass aligned to? It's pointing north, but pointing north in your flesh or pointing north because of the new spirit that lives within you. So we can have confidence in God's love And that gives us a command to love each other. But where is your compass pointed toward today? He commands us in John. We are part of the same body. And it makes zero sense for one part of the body to hate another part of the body. He's giving us that look, that story, that thought. It makes no sense for my leg to look up at my elbow and say, you are useless, take a hike. Well, in the body of Christ, it makes no sense. No matter how frustrated you might be, whatever, we are here, we are the body of Christ, and how do we treat one another? Love each other. 
Love each other because we're all created in the image of God. This is a hard one. You look on the TV, you see terrorism, you see what's happened in Paris and beyond. You go, they're not created in the image of God. Newsflash. They are. Humans, homo sapiens, are created in the image of God. And isn't it sad that they've sucked up a lie so bad that they go and kill other human beings? Isn't that sad? But they are created in the image of God. How do we respond? Some of this is hard. Love each other in the body of Christ big time. I think people need to be able to look through our windows and how we function, how we take care of one another, how we drive, drive each other to appointments, how we visit each other in the hospital, how we come together for a building project, all this stuff. And I think they need to look in and go, oh my goodness. what? It's because of the love of God manifested within us. We're a living testimony on how we can have different opinions and agree, disagree, but still love each other. We're still human. We still have opinions. We still have different tastes and different desires. But the command of Christ is to love one another. And because of the love manifested in us by what Jesus Christ done on the cross, we can do that. John 13 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Are you kidding me? So people can actually see something different because we obey the command. Not the good idea. The command. The imperative. Go love one another. And folks will be able to see that and they'll be able to say, wow, that's a disciple. That's a Christ one. That's a follower. So I think here, I'll wrap up with this. At White Rock Community Church, I won't give you an exhaustive list, but I'll say just a little bit, is I think we've seen the pursuing love of God. I see the pursuing love of God even to show himself to what I said at the beginning of the service with Tim Tange. Like, he just moved out on obedience to Edmonton, wasn't sure why, and over and over again, like the house that he got, and now... He's just been blessed with an incredible deal with a Sienna van, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that God just gives stuff. But let me tell you, Tim and Alyssa needed to feel and sense the direction of God. And now their little boy is on the right path to getting whole and healthy. I think that's pretty cool. God pursuing. But how do we love one another? How is White Rock Community Church doing? I'll tell you, we have it pretty easy in White Rock. It's beautiful. Why get involved? But yet, monthly, there's a whole family and many others that are constantly going to Wally, thinking about Wally, going to night shift ministries and playing music, uh, hanging out with people, sometimes even rubbing feet and giving out hot chocolate and giving out sandwiches, getting involved, trying to show the love of Christ. That's loving one another. Or like I said before, our seniors. When our seniors hear that some kid can't go on a snowboard retreat because of money, my goodness, our seniors get involved and out comes the pen and the checkbook. That is the love of Christ in loving one another. Or any time throughout the year, you come here and people are missing. You guys, it's amazing to me that this little church Almost every Sunday, somebody's missing because they're on a missions trip somewhere. 
So I could go on and on and on, or even see when we see, do a, re, a, a renovation, people just come out of the woodwork and they're part of it. They get their hands dirty. We could go on and on and on. But this is what we're talking about. We experience the love of God. And the love of God has been pursuing and released within us. And we aren't doing all this stuff because we're fearful of God. Not at all. We're doing it because we get to abide in God. And now we seek to show that abiding by loving on other people and getting involved. So folks, in the next few weeks, next four or five weeks, we're going to be talking about how to love one another. And what does that mean? What does that mean? And I want to close with these words that Holy Spirit penned through the Apostle Paul. And then I'll give it over to Pastor Ken for communion. Philippians 1 says, And I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Your love, take these words that I-